Welcome to the Big Band Finals with Doug Miles. This program is a special program. It's a salute to baseball. You'll be hearing some of the great voices of the game, play-by-play announcers calling some of the great moments of baseball, and some baseball tunes along the way. We'll also have a special interview done with the great Jolton Joe DiMaggio himself with my co-host on Sports Talk, Don Henderson. So stay with us, relax, enjoy some of the great moments of baseball here on the Big Band Files. The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn, so down on the corner the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke And me, I always loved Willie May Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Cuisinberry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke, they'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Third, Willie Mays just brought this crowd to its feet with a catch 
must have been an optical illusion to a lot of people. Left-handed pitcher Chuck Stobbs on the mound. Mickey Mantle, a switch hitter, batting right-handed. Digs in at the plate. Here's the pitch. Mantle swings. There's a tremendous drive going into deep left field. It's going, going. It's going over the bleachers and over the sign atop the bleachers into the yards of houses across the street. It's got to be one of the longest home runs I've ever seen hit. How I hugged my daddy when he gave me that old baseball glove. I think I slept with it that night. I loved it so much. I wonder if Hank Aaron started out that way. Dreaming of the big league. Hall of Fame I'm going to the place where baseball lives Ruth and Cobb and Joe DiMaggio Sunny days and Ladies and gentlemen, I now declare the National Baseball Museum 
and the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, the birthplace of baseball, open. May it forever stand as a symbol of clean play and good sportsmanship. We now pay honor to the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, great players and great sportsmen of the past and present. Cornelius A. McGillicuddy. Connie Mack. I feel greatly honored in being here today where uh, our first uh, national game was started by Major Abner Doubleday. And now, Hannes Wagner, the Flying Dutchman, the greatest shortstop in the game's history. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was born in 1874. And this organization started was 1876. And when I was just a kid, I said, I hope someday I'll be up there playing in this league. The next memorial to come before the mic is Tris Speaker, greatest defensive player of all time and a great hitter. I'm very happy indeed to have been chosen by the sports writers as a member of this great Hall of Fame. Napoleon Larry Lajewey. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very glad to be here today and to meet all the old-timers that you probably, a lot of you, have watched playing baseball and some of the greatest men that ever walked on the ball field. Grover Cleveland Alexander. I'm proud to be a member of these gentlemen who have been here before me and will follow me up here. And in my dreams, I often think what I could do today with a team like they were, if they could be now what they were then. Babe Bruce, the Bambino. You know, to me, this is just like an anniversary myself. Because... 25 years ago yesterday, I pitched my first baseball game in Boston for the Boston Red Sox. <clears throat> Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse. Nothing in my purse and chuckles when the preacher said, for better or for worse, how lovely it was. Thanks for the memory of Schubert's serenade, little things of jade, and traffic jams and anagrams and bills we never paid. How lovely it was. We who could laugh over big things Were parted by only a slight thing I wonder if we did the right thing Oh, well, that's life, I guess I love your dress Do you? It's pretty Thanks For the memory Of faults that you forgave Rainbows on a wave and stockings in the basin when a fellow needs a shave. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for the memory of tinkling temple bells, alma mater yell. And Cuban rum and towels from the very best hotel. Oh, how lovely it was. The memory of cushions on the floor, hashed with Diddy Moore, 
That pair of gay pajamas that you bought and never wore. <laughs> Say, by the way, whatever became of those pajamas? Huh? Huh? We said goodbye with a highball. Then I got as high as a steeple. Did you? But we were intelligent people. No tears, no fuss. Hooray for us. Strictly on for a new. Darling, how are you? And how are all those little dreams that never did come true? Awfully glad I met you. Cheerio, toodaloo. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Larry King. Baseball and Brooklyn. That was my life as a child. And baseball and Brooklyn were intertwined. They were one and the same. One did not live in Brooklyn and not be part of baseball. One could not be part of baseball and not live in Brooklyn, as Stan Musial told me in one of our many interviews. Coming to Brooklyn was coming to baseball, to play at Ebbets Field. And Ebbets Field was my childhood. The first memory I have of childhood is the voice of Red Barber. Friends, God, how that rung in my ear and stayed with me through a lifetime. The voice of Red Barber at Ebbets Field and Dodger Baseball and Hilda Chester and her loud, clanging harangue from the center field bleachers and the Brooklyn Symphony. It was my great fortune to be present at the first game Jackie Robinson ever played in Ebbets Field. The record books will say it was against the Boston Braves in a home opener but it actually was against the New York Yankees in a preseason exhibition game. The Dodgers always played the Yankees preseason exhibition games, one in Yankee Stadium, one in Ebbets Field, on a Saturday and Sunday before the season always began traditionally on a Tuesday. It was a cold, bitter cold day. I remember sipping coffee through a straw and the straw unraveling and seeing number 42 come on the field. And all of us kids wondering why there weren't other black players in the major leagues. We'd read of Josh Gibson and, of course, the immortal late Leroy Satchel Page. But here it was, live in the flesh, Jackie Robinson. I interviewed Robinson five weeks before he died of diabetes, and he never forgot that first day he stepped onto the Teuf at Ebbets Field. A humorous memory of Ebbets Field... Passover. Passover always came at the beginning of the season. Most of the kids were Jewish. Sandy Koufax, one of the boys, had just joined the Dodgers, was given a number he hated, number 32. And as uh, luck would have it, Passover fell on one of those Dodger-Yankee games before the season began. So we all went to Ebbets Field and packed our matzah sandwiches. We even took extra matzah with chicken fat to give out to our Dodger friends. We walked down to the dugout. All of us handing out matzo sandwiches to the Dodgers. Sandy at the end of the dugout screaming, Get away! Get away! Get away! And the Dodgers, fascinated with matzo and chicken fat. Joe Hatton saying, What is this? Walter Olson saying, Eat it. It can't be bad for you if it's Jewish. And Jackie Robinson saying, Matzo and chicken fat? 
This is soul food. Two out last of the ninth, two to one, New York. Well, Eddie Stanky is stepping in. You know, your Blackwell had pitched one no-hitter and was on the verge of pitching a second successive one against the Dodgers. He had gone eight and a third innings. And Stanky uh, broke up uh, Blackwell's bid for two straight no-hitters. So Stanky's up with the idea of trying to... Wait a minute. Stanky is being called back from the plate and Lavagello goes up to hit. Gianfrido walks off second. Makes it off first. They're both ready to go on anything. Two men out, last of the ninth. The pitch swung on. There's a drive hit out toward the right field corner. Henrik is going back. He can't get it. It's off the wall for a base hit. Here comes the tying run. And here comes the winning run. Joe DiMaggio up. Rolling at a club down at the end. Big fella sets hat and pitches. The curveball high outside for ball one. So the Dodgers are ahead eight to five. And the crowd well knows that one swing of this bat, this fellow's capable of making it a brand new game again. Joe leans in. He has one for three today. Six hits so far in the series. Outfield deep, round toward left. The infield overshifted. Here's the pitch. Swung on, belted. It's a long one. Deep in the left center. Back for Jean Frito. Back, 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 back. He makes a one-handed catch against the bullpen. Oh, doctor. young men came west to play the game in dodger blue through laughter and tears the young men came west and rose to fame in dodger blue and they stayed and they played and they made a dream come true so here's to the dream, and here's to the team in Los Angeles, Dodger Blue. Wally Moon, Wes Parker, Manny Mota, Norm Larker, McMullen, McDevitt, McDermott, McBean. Doyle Alexander and Claude Osteen Art Fowler, Dick Egan Tommy Haller, Phil Regan Simoli, Farillo, Hodges and Duke Erskine and Koufax, Drysdale and Nuke From Smokey Walt Alston to Sweet Sweet Lou they all wore Dodger blue, Los Angeles, Dodger blue. Some came up for just a cup of coffee, while others stayed for many a season through. But they all had a dream, and they all made the team, and they all wore Dodger blue. Maury Wills, Jim Ferry, Norm and Larry Sherry, Lefevre, Lasorda, Valentine, Reese and Reese, Clem Labine, Roger Craig, Tom Hutton. Steve Yeager, Don Sutton, 
Will Hyde and Williams, Zimmer and Zahn, Garvey and Gilliam, Joshua and John, and one Marichal was a Dodger too. Even he wore Dodger blue. Los Angeles, Dodger blue. And they stayed and they played and they made a dream come true. So here's to the dream and here's to the team in Los Angeles. This is a definition of baseball I wrote in 1955. A lot of things have changed about the game since then, but I think the spirit of baseball is still there. Baseball is a president tossing out the first ball of the season and a pudgy schoolboy playing catch with his dad on a Mississippi farm. A tall, thin old man waving a scorecard from the corner of his dugout. That's baseball. And so is a big, fat guy with a bulbous nose running home one of his 714 home runs. There's a man in Mobile who remembers that Hannes Wagner had a triple in Pittsburgh 46 years ago. That's baseball. And so is a scout reporting that a 16-year-old Sandlot pitcher in Cheyenne is the coming Walter Johnson. Baseball is a spirited race of man against man, reflex against reflex, a game of inches. Every skill is measured, every heroic, every failing, seen and cheered or booed, and then becomes a statistic. In baseball, democracy shines its clearest. The only race that matters is the race of the bag. The creed is a rule book, and color merely something to distinguish one team's uniform from another. Baseball is a rookie, his experience no bigger than the lump in his throat as he begins fulfillment of his dream. It's a veteran, too. A tired old man of 35, hoping those aching muscles can pull him through another sweltering August and September. Nicknames of baseball, names like Zeke and Pie and Kai Kai and Home Run and Cracker and Dizzy and Dazzy. Baseball is the clear, cool eyes of Rogers Hornsby, the flashing spikes of a Ty Cobb, and an overaged pixie named Rabbit Moranville. Baseball, just a game, as simple as a ball and bat, and yet as complex as the American spirit it symbolizes. It's a sport, a business, sometimes almost even religion. Why, the fairy tale of Willie Mays making a brilliant World Series catch and then dashing off to play stickball in the streets with his teenage pals. That's baseball. And so is the husky voice of a doomed Lou Gehrig saying, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of this earth. Baseball is cigar smoke, hot roasted peanuts, ladies' day, down in front, take me out to the ball game, the seventh inning stretch, and the star-spangled banner. Baseball is a man named Campanella telling the nation's business leaders, you have to be a man to be a big leaguer, but you have to have a lot of little boy in you too. This is a game for America, this baseball, a game for boys and for men. I'll guarantee that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. 
And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting, stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready, gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no hitter, a perfect game for John Larson. Here's the pitch. Line drive, there it is, into left field, hit number 3,000, a run is scored, Musial around first, on his way to second with a double. Holy cow, he came through. For the final out of the ninth inning, was a strikeout on Luberdet. It was the eighth turned in by Haddix, and at that moment, he became the eighth pitcher in all the history of baseball to pitch a perfect no-hit, no-run game. He then went on to get him in the 10th and the 11th and the 12th, retiring 36 in a row and counting the final two outs he had against the Cardinals in his last victory at Forbes Field. He retired 38 men in order before a man got aboard and then only on an error. One out, batter Adcock. Here's the pitch. There's a fly ball, deep right center. That ball may be on through and over everything. It is gone, home run. Fantastic. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings. And there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone. And it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the major league. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep to left. This may do it. Back to the wall goes Barra. It is over the fence. Home run. The Pirates win. Ladies and gentlemen, Mazeroski has hit a one-nothing pitch over the left field fence at Forbes Field to win the 1960 World Series for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Heeny Majeski, Johnny G, Eddie Juiced, Johnny Pesky, Thornton. Danny Gardella, Van Lingo Mongo, Whitey Kowalski, Max Lanier, Eddie Wakeus, and Johnny Vandermeer, Bob Estalella, Van Lingo Mongo. Augie Bergamo, Sigmund Jakuki, Big Johnny Mize and Barney McCoskey, Hal Trotsky, Augie Galan and Pinky May, Stan Hack and Frenchie Bordegaray, Phil Cavaretta, George McQuinn, Howard Pollett, an early win. Roy Campanella, Van Lingo Mongo. Augie Bergamo, Sigmund Jakuki. Johnny Mize and Barney McCoskey, Hal Trotsky, John Antonelli, Ferris Fane, Frank
Frankie Crosetti, Johnny Sane, Harry Brookine and Lou Boudreaux, Frankie Gustine and Claude Passo. Eddie Basinski, Ernie Lombardi, Huey Mulcahy, Van Lingle, Van Lingle, Mungo. You are listening to the Big Band Files with Doug Miles, our salute to baseball. Now back to the show. I got thinking about baseball and how games are marketed today. You know, you go to a game manufacturer and they figure everything out and decide whether the game is right for, for the public or not, and then they market it. And it got me to thinking, supposing Abner Doubleday had called one of the game manufacturers with this new invention of his called baseball. Now, I think a phone conversation would have taken place something like this. Hello, Olympic Games. What, what can I do for you, Mr. Double A? You, you, you've got a game. I, I, how many couples? Eight, 18 people? There's a hell of a lot of people. There. Well, the ideal game is, I mean, uh, two, three couples, you know, uh, come over to the house, they get a little smashed, and uh, you know. You can't play it in the house either. I see you got two things uh, right there against you. All right, all right, tell, tell, tell me about it. All right, you, you, got, you got nine guys on each side, yeah. And you got a pitcher and a catcher. And they, and they throw this ball back and forth. And that's all there is to it? All right, a, a, guy, a guy from the other side stands between them with a bat. <laughs> I see. And he just watches him. Oh, I see. He, he swings at it. He may or he may not swing at it. D depending on what. If it looked like it were a ball. Uh, what's a ball, Mr. Doubleday? You, you've got this plate. Uh-huh. And as long as it's above the knees, <laughs> But below the shoulders. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah. It, it's a strike. Three, three strikes and you're out. And three balls. Not, not three balls. Four balls. Why four balls, Mr. Double? Nobody's ever asked you before. If, or he may hit it. If he hits it, what happens? He, he runs as far as he can be, before somebody catches it. As long as it stays what? As long as it stays fair. <laughs> and and what's, what's, what's fair, Mr. Double You've got these two white lines? Is this a rib? Is this one of the guys in the office? <laughs> Mr. Double A, uh, that's, that's the most complicated game I've ever heard in my life. 
For, forget it. All right. Uh, Mr. Doubleday, listen, though. You come up with anything too, three couples, you'll be sure and let us know, huh? All right, Mr. Doubleday, I'll be talking. Right. Perfect ball game. Struck it out. 
Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Here's the set by Segee, the pitch. Swung on and You are listening to the Big Band Files with Doug Miles, our salute to baseball. Now back to the show. Side 6 6, Darcy pitching. Fisk takes high inside, ball one. Freddie Lynn on deck. There have been numerous heroics tonight, both sides. The 1 0 delivery to Fisk. He swings, long drive, left field. If it stays fair, it's gone. Home run. The Red Sox win. And the series is tied three games apiece. Carlton Fisk hit a one-nothing pitch. They're jamming out on the field. His teammates are waiting for him. The ball hit the foul pole. And the Red Sox have sent the World Series into game seven with a dramatic 7-6 victory. What a game. This is one of the greatest World Series games of all time. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shao kicks and he fires. Rose Swain. There it is. There it is. Get out. Get out. Get out. It's number 4192. A line drive single into left center field. A clean base hit. It is pandemonium here at Riverfront Stadium. Get a drive to right field. It's eight. Chris going back. Away. This is set. The pitch. Drive the right field and deep. Way back. Going, going, going. Another home run for Reggie Jackson. And the Yankees lead 7 to 3. With four runs batted in. It's a fly ball to center field and deep. That's going to be way back and that's going to be gone. Reggie Jackson is in his third home run of the game. Curveball. Long drive right field. Way up. Forget it. Home run, upper deck for Freddie Lynn. Red Sox lead three to nothing. Burleson at third, Yastrzemski at first. Coleman, work. And there goes a high shot to right field. That's up, it's towering, it's gone. It's on the roof. Freddie Lynn hit one's on the roof in Detroit for his second home run. And the Red Sox now lead by a six to one score. Oh, mercy. Pitches to Lynn. There goes Scott, left field, deep, way back, way back, and hits off the scoreboard. Here's Burleson in to score. Here comes Yastrzemski around to score. Lynn is going into third base. He's got a triple. Two more runs batted in, and Lynn has driven in seven. And there goes a shot deep to right field. High in the air, and we watch this one go into the upper deck. His third home run of the night. As he goes five for six with three home runs. And ten runs batted in. I've got the baseball blues because my baby ain't got no baseball shoes. I've got the baseball blues because my baby ain't got no baseball shoes. Well, I asked him, honey, hey, what do you want? 
said, honey, bitch, there's only one thing I want, and that's some baseball shoes, and that's why I've got the baseball blues. I've got the baseball blues because my baby ain't got no baseball shoes. I've got the baseball blues because my baby ain't got no baseball shoes. Well, I've been to the store one, two, three, four times. I said, hey, mister, have you got any more of them baseball shoes? Because my baby's got the baseball blues. I've got the baseball blues. Because my baby ain't got no baseball shoes. Any baseball shoes, having a garden My baby's got the baseball blues Because my baby got no baseball shoes I've got the baseball blues Because my baby got no baseball shoes I said that I've got the baseball blues Because my baby got no baseball shoes Well to me gently over breakfast She told me as we sipped our tea I sat there dumbfounded At what she was telling me How come this subject never came up How did this subject stay concealed the woman who I married Saw the Dodgers play at Ebbets Field You must understand That as a boy from Maryland I never saw no major league teams To have sat beside her watching recent Cox and Snyder would have been the answer to my dreams How come this subject never came up 
How come this subject stayed concealed? The woman who I sleep with saw the Dodgers play at a bird's At a bird's summer nights I'd turn off the lights and lay my little head down on the pillow then listen to the Dodgers games I mean I knew all the Dodger names guys like Weeks and Cox and Carl Farillo how come this subject never came up how come this subject stayed concealed woman who I live with saw the Dodgers play she could see them every day saw the Dodgers play she only lived three miles away yeah she saw the Dodgers play in Everett's You are listening to the Big Band Files with Doug Miles, our salute to baseball. Now back to the show. And the Dodgers go down in the eighth inning. No runs, no hits, no errors, and one left on. The end of eight innings, the score. The Dodgers five, the Phillies nothing, and here's a word from Vin. And so it has come down to this on a coolish evening in New York, September the 25th, 1956. The Dodgers trying to cut the league-leading Milwaukee Braves lead to a half a game. And Sal Magley, the 39-year-old veteran, who has bounced around in baseball. Remember way back in the bitter days when he was in the Mexican League. Back with the Giants, brilliant years there. Then over to Cleveland, not getting much of a chance to work. Coming back to Brooklyn in a startling purchase by the Dodgers and becoming one of the spearheads of their drives in this 1956 pennant race. And the 39-year-old veteran, as he warms up with Roy Campanella right now, is face-to-face with perhaps his finest hour in baseball. Magley, through eight innings, has given up no runs and no hits. The Phillies have committed two errors. The Dodgers lead on five runs and four hits and no errors. So on a few occasions this year, they have looked to Magley. They look to him again. Jackie Robinson rubs up the ball, says the last few words of encouragement to him in this crowd of 15,204, all rooting for him now, lean forward and await the first pitch. Frankie Baumholtz will be coming up first, and so to the ninth inning, 5 nothing Brooklyn, Magley going to work, and back to Jerry. Ready to go, Frankie Baumholtz batting for Roy Smalley. Harvey Haddix is out on deck, indicating he'll bat for the pitcher Sanford. The manager, Mayo Smith, going with the left-hand batters against Magley. Sal, as Vin told you, three outs away from another history-making episode of his long baseball career curve is in for strike one. 
So we'll follow it closely and carefully for you here in the ninth inning. Magley has allowed just two base on balls. And one of those uh, runners, he raced on a double play ball just last inning in the eighth. Top of the ninth. Number 16, Frankie Baumholtz, hitting 273, left-hand swinger. Magley into the windup, and down it comes. Pop-up, back of the plate, Campanella coming back toward the dugout. Back, 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 and makes the grab, falls in the dugout. Great play by Campanella. Dale Mitchell came out of the dugout and held Campy, kept him from uh, going head over heels into the dugout. 5,000 lucky strikes for that play to our honor hospital, the VA hospital at Newington, Kentucky, uh, Connecticut, and uh, we'll give another 1,000 for that double play in the eighth inning. We forgot to give those out. Here is Harvey Haddix now batting for pitcher Jack Sanford. A great catch by Campanella, who came to the dugout steps, leaned on top of the dugout, made the grab, and then got an assist from Dale Mitchell to keep from falling into the dugout. One in the ninth inning, left-hand batter Harvey Haddix up with Richie Ashburn on deck. Magley looks down now, and the crowd tenses. Here's the pitch. Curve for a strike. You can just feel the tension oozing out of this crowd now, and I imagine you at home feel the same way. Crowd cheering on every pitch. Pop-up foul, back upstairs, and it's strike two. And we, of course, in our enthusiasm watching this, liable to get a little excited on a play. So we'll try to stay right with it. Reese rubs up the ball. Harvey Haddix, the pitcher, batting for Sanford. He's a left-hand swinger, one out in the ninth. The Bills, no runs, no hits. Through eight and one-third innings. Magley into the windup, and down it comes. Foul ball, straight back, into the wire, still strike two. 39-year-old Sal Magley walking around out behind the pitcher's mound. Let's Reese rub it up again. See, we puts the good luck on it and fires it back to Sal. Not a soul has left this ballpark. Five to nothing. Dodgers lead. Top of the ninth. One out. Haddix waits. Left-hand swinger. The pitch. Straight three. Harvey Haddock had a swing and a miss. Two away, and Richie Ashburn comes out. The crowd is standing and cheering. What a moment. Sal Magley. Right at the top now. Two outs in the ninth inning. Robinson a third, laying in close to guard against the possibility of a bunt tried by Ashburn. Two down in the ninth. Sal ready, winds and fires. High with the curve, ball one. In the inning, Baumholtz fouled out to Campanella on a spectacular play at the Dodger dugout. Pinch hitter Harvey Haddix struck out swinging. Two away in the ninth inning. Here we go, the windup and pitch. Curve strike, one and one. And Ashburn didn't like the call. Ashburn uh, pushes the bat vigorously at the dirt. He didn't like that last call. 
Figures that might have been a big, uh, big pitch for him. 2-0 instead of 1-1. One ball, one strike. Richie Ashburn up has popped up, grounded out inside the left. Sal Magley now. And can't you just imagine how Sal feels out there? He needs one more big out to gain another little niche of baseball immortality. Oh, I tell you. It's a real feeling. 1-1 one, one pitch on the way. Pop foul to the left. Robinson gives it a try, and it's in the stands about four rows back. Robbie went to the railing and almost dived in to get that ball. One and two, the count on Richie Ashburn. And now, Sal is within one strike of getting that big out. Reese rubs it up again. If he gets Ashburn, you won't be able to hear us. All you'll be able to hear will be the roar of the crowd, I'm sure. They're standing up. One and two. Two outs in the ninth. Magley's pitch. Five ball foul to the left and out of play. Down in the stands again. And Robinson running over for that one. Just wishing he had a string on it so he could pull it back into the field of play. Oh, boy. And again, Pee Wee rubs up the ball. Sal rubs it up now. Ashburn steps out. One ball, two strikes. Two outs in the ninth. Fans going crazy. Here's the pitch. Hit him on the foot. And so Ashburn will take first. Hit by a pitch ball on the game continues. Ashburn draws booze now. He was a little unhappy about being hit. And another left-hand batter, Marv Blaylock, will come on. Time now as Magley, Reese, and Robinson have a brief talk. Robbie goes on back to third. So the tension breaks for a moment as Ashburn is walked and takes first. And Lucky Strike sending you all the action. Sal fires it over to Hodges now to let Gill rub it up. He asks Gill to put a little luck on it. Marv Blaylock has slide to left, grounded out to second, grounded out to first. Well, pull out that pack of luckies, light them up here, and just uh, lean back and let's see what happens now. Two down in the ninth, one on. Ashburn, the third base runner. Here's Magley out of a stretch, delivers foul ball off the bat as Blaylock tried to check his swing. Strike one. When he got that count down to one and two on Ashburn, lost the really going here. Fans started standing up and started way down in right field and then uh, just kept moving on up. Strike one count to Blaylock. Here's the stretch. The look to first to Ashburn. The pitch. A bouncing ball to second baseman. Gilliam up with it. Play to first. No hitter for Magley. Magley's being mobbed by his teammates, fans, everyone out of the stands after Sal Magley, the hero of Brooklyn, who has done a tremendous job, a no-hitter for Sal Magley here against the Phillies, as Marv Blaylock hit a routine ground ball at the second baseman, Jim Gilliam, 
and you could just feel Gilliam squeeze that baseball and make an accurate, careful throw to Gil Hodges in time to get Blaylock and retire the side and end the ball game. And for Sal Magley, a 39-year-old veteran with a great comeback, the oldest pitcher to have a no-hitter since Cy Young in 1908, got one at the age of 41. And for Sal, a great one. Well, Benny, that was quite a ball game and quite a finish. What have you got to say, boy? Well, Mr. Sal Magley certainly has had his ups and downs. You can remember that name way back when, when he and a pitcher by the name of Adrian Zabala first came to the New York Giants. Remember when they used to warm up in the bullpen, Magley and Zabala. They were both ball players who were not too well known. Zabala eventually went out into obscurity, and Magley, for that matter, you remember, went down into the Mexican League. He and Georgie Hausman of the Giants, we remember, went down there a couple of, along with a couple of other ball players. And Magley returned to the major leagues, and what a star he was for the New York Giants. One of the most feared pitchers in the National League, and certainly one of the great ones through the years starting of 1951. Magley, of course, constantly the Dodger beater. So many times he walked to the mound and made Brooklyn so sorrowful. But tonight, Magley has repaid all the grief and all the sorrow he has brought to the Brooklyn borough. For tonight, he won a ball game the Dodgers felt they had to win. What is most important, and I imagine it is most important in Magley's mind right now, not so much the no-hitter, but first of all, they did cut the brave lead to the half a game. And I imagine Magley sitting downstairs right now can just sit back and glow for 39 years old in a, well, a season for him that was remarkable. He was not doing too much for Cleveland, and the ball club purchased him. And I think when he was first purchased, you remember Mark saying, well, he'd have spot relief duty. He might start once every 10 days. But instead, it was the veteran Sal Magley who has been helping the Dodgers all year, ever since the day was purchased, to keep them in the pennant race. And tonight, as he walked out to the mound on a very cold evening, and from the sixth inning on, Magley was fighting not only the Phillies and his no-hitter and his shutout in the complete game, but he himself was fighting the cold wind that was blowing in from left field. And after the sixth inning, every time Magley went out to the mound, he kept pinwheeling his arms back and forth to try and loosen up those shoulder muscles. On so many occasions this year, remember Magley had made 24 other starts and completed only seven. On so many other occasions, Magley had stiffened up. And this was a night where you would expect 39-year-old Bones to begin to tighten up a bit, especially with that north wind right on his back throughout. But Magley just kept reaching back for more and more and eventually gave Brooklyn one of the big thrills of the year as he pitches the no-hitter against the Phillies. It was quite a night, one we'll long remember, this September the 25th, 1956. It was a big night, too, for our veterans of our honor hospital, the VA hospital at Newington, Connecticut, for we picked up 20,000 luckies for the no-hitter and 10,000 more luckies for the shutout. So altogether, 42,000 luckies to our honored veterans, the VA hospital at Newington, Connecticut. And so... Hats off to Sal Magley, a great competitor in one of the brightest moments of a long career. Well, that just about wraps it up. We'll be back with a final recap in just a moment. But first, here's Pretty Miss Dorothy Collins. You are listening to the Big Band Files with Doug Miles, our salute to baseball. Now back to the show. Thank you very much, Bill. The time here in the Delaware Valley is 7.43. Don Henderson with you, and we have a very special guest with us in the booth, Hall of Famer. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. And Joe, uh, first of all, I know you were in the Allentown area today working in conjunction with a golf tournament up there. Maybe you just explained to everybody what brings you to Philadelphia and into the Allentown area today. Well, I had promised Ed Liberto, who's scouting for the Dodgers, that if I did play up there with Stiegler up at Allentown, that I would come to the ball game with him. 
and here I am, and I hope we get a chance to see the ball game because I know what they're doing out there at the moment. They're trying to dry off the field. Let's hope that the skies don't open up and we'll, we'll see a ball game. Joe DiMaggio, any time that we have an opportunity to talk with you, we have to talk about the 56-game hitting streak and Kenny Kultner and what happened in Cleveland. And Because I think of all the records, and there are just so many, of course, we talk about uh, the late Roger Maris's record with 61 home runs, but I think the 56-game hitting streak and uh, your ability game after game after game to continue to keep that streak alive has to be the most fascinating streak in baseball. Well, <laughs> I tell you, I am proud of the fact that I own that record, but um, I, I enjoyed every minute of the, the time before that. I was in the slump, which I didn't enjoy. But once I got out of the slump and got the one hit in Chicago, I went on until the 56th game, as you might know um, a little bit about. I think you were following it at that time. But um, to get back to when I was stopped, I told you about the one hit that I got. It was inconsequential. It didn't mean a thing. But the day I was stopped in Cleveland with 65, about 70,000 people that had attended a night ball game, and uh, Kenny Keltner was playing third base. I would have to question where he was playing because really, actually, he was playing short left field. As I remember because the story, it was a little wet. Well, wet that's that a thing. Long, that, yeah, it was a little bit wet. It's, uh, it rained the day during the day, and of course, it was a night ball game. Uh, but I had a shot down there by the line, and he, he fielded it on a half hop, and uh, he had to, the momentum car carried him out in foul territory, and he had to straighten up to make the throw to first base. But he just got there just about the time I got there, and the umpire called me out, which was the right call, of course. And the second time I came to bat, the same exact thing had happened. I don't think that that ball was... If you put a dime there, it would have hit to the same spot. But uh, he still made that long throw and got me up. But if it hadn't rained during the day, I guarantee I would have beat those plays out. <laughs> but you know, he played me short left field. Now, I must say to you that years later, I went to him. I said, uh, when I, we were attending some kind of an affair, I said, I didn't mind you playing me short left field because you know I didn't bunt you didn't know you didn't think that I was going to bunt for the base hit I said but why did you play me right on the line and his answer was to me he said well I was just trying to stop a two base hit he did more than that <laughs> he certainly did he stopped a couple of uh, major major streaks and when we talk in terms of major streaks in baseball I guess the year 1941 comes back to everyone's mind that is old enough to remember and for some of the younger folks that are listening right now one of the most mon monumental years in baseball and the fact that you hit 56 straight games and of course Ted Williams at that particular time hit 406 both in the same year both going for the most valuable player and it's amazing that you would have and if I remember correctly Joe and I don't have the stats in front of me you struck out 13 times I believe that year which is incredible for somebody hitting the ball the way you did well I don't remember how many times I struck out as a matter of fact up until this day until you just brought it up I didn't know that was the year but I didn't strike out too very many times. But I want to tell you about Ted. He is the greatest hitter I had ever seen all through the years. And um, when, when they had to vote for the MVP, he hit 406 that year, which is a remarkable thing. Uh, I did beat him out by one vote. And I could have not squawked or wouldn't have felt bad had he had beaten me by the one vote. It would have been nice had we got a tie. 
Joe DiMaggio, our guest here in a little bit of a rain delay at Veterans Stadium. As you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers taking on the Philadelphia Phillies. Game time was to have been 7.35. And Joe D., kind enough to spend a few moments with us talking about the year 1941, the 56-game hitting streak. And, of course, some of the monumental feats that happened in baseball during his era and, of course, a Hall of Famer. And when you talk about those New York Yankee teams and, of course, Morris Joe McCarthy and the way he handled players at that particular time, it was a great deal different than what we see today. Well, it's a little different. You know, players today and old-time ball players that I played with, they question whether Joe McCarthy could have managed today because he was, in a sense, a disciplinarian. And for the day, the things that baseball players do, and um, I guess managers are a little more lax or whatever it might be, I think that's because of what um, it calls for today. Lax in the sense that they weren't they're not as disciplined as Joe McCarthy. Joe, let's talk about a contrast in style, because if you read about hitting, a Joe D has a slight uppercut swing. A Ted Williams has a slight uppercut swing. If you talk to uh, Wade Boggs today, or if you talk to George Brett today, an outstanding hitter, both outstanding hitters, they believe in a completely different concept. And I know in talking to someone just the other day, they were talking about Bill Dickey's theory of hitting and lining the knuckles up, that that was the single most important thing to Dickey when he was the hitting coach on the New York Yankees. Today, that's almost passe. They don't even think about that. Well, that's the way I batted. Anyhow, I had the knuckles lined up. Uh, but to get back to your original uh, question here and talking about the hitters and my uppercutting and uh, uh, the other fellows' uppercutting as well as Williams, I'd have to go along with a the theory, and I did, exactly that way Paul Wayner hit. He hit down on the ball. So I have to contradict you there, Don, that uh, I hit entirely different. I was more of a line drive hitter. Uh, Ted naturally had great power. And his line drives, incidentally, he had that little bit of the uppercut. His line drives were the most difficult line drive to try to catch, particularly in the outfield, because his balls used to sink on a line drive. And they were very difficult to catch. But his balls that he hit high just kept going and going and going. And my gosh, it just went out of sight. And here you thought it might have been a fly ball. But when it landed, you knew that was a real major home run. He was just a great hitter, and he did all those things. Now, Brett, I don't, Brett is a good hitter, no matter what you look at there. He goes to the opposite field. Ted was a full hitter, strictly full hitter. Uh, the times that he did go to bat, Cleveland, for instance, they shifted the whole infield, like the third baseman played behind second base. The shortstop was over. Uh, playing practically in the second base uh, position and of course second baseman between between first and the second baseman or the shortstop whatever you want to call it oh there comes the reins but uh, and he still tried to pull all he had to do was go the other way but it was a challenge to him and he still loved to hit that ball on that that part of the bat and like to see that ball take off amazing the discipline that he had they constantly talk about the strike zone and his ability to reflect and react within the confines of the strike zone and they always talk about the one shortness of his game would be on a say a 3-1 pitch for instance with the tying or winning run on third base he was so disciplined that he would not swing at that 3-1 pitch in that situation even giving himself up because he was so disciplined saying that if I once start to do that I'll continue to do it well that was his theory and that's the way he he wanted the ball to be a strike and that he wanted to right down where his alley was but you know I have to go along with the other idea that he was the big hitter and I'm sure being such a great hitter as he was that if he did 
swing at a ball that might have been a half an inch outside or an inch outside. He could have been such more difficult to pitch to. They'd have been scared to death. But he had to get that base hit to drive them in. After all, he was the champion hitter for several years, and he was the best hit in the Boston Red Sox. They had to depend on him for hitting those RBIs, particularly in those late innings. But he was just satisfied to get the... Of course, you know, he did... He had those pitches pitching the corners, and he didn't get very much to hit, it's true. But with three and two, and men in scoring position, or you have to get a man on first and third, you happen to have one there. And um, they didn't want to walk in to put possibly a tying runner in second place at that time. Today they would do it with a man like Williams. But he, I think, had to go out and really go after that pitch. Joe DiMaggio, our guest here, and of course, Hall of Famer, New York Yankees superstar for so many years. And Let's go to the other side of the game because I always like to look at the Phil Rizzuto type player the guy that didn't have the skills of a Joe DiMaggio in terms of size and strength or a Ted Williams a man that would maximize the abilities that he had and Phil always to me uh, epitomized a guy that could bunt probably the best bunter I ever saw in baseball and he maximized he didn't have the greatest arm in the world but he knew how to play the hitters he really maximized every bit of talent that he had once he went between the lines but you describe him very well there you know he didn't have the arm. But he sure could make the plays, and he was a shot. He was a pretty sharp uh, shortstop, very smart. He knew just how far he could go out with a ball that might have been in between the long ball, which would um, be perhaps the uh, man at first base going to score on that uh, two base hit or possibly a triple. He could always, he would always let the man in the outfield make the long throw in our case because he knew his arm was just weak enough that he. He's played a little beyond the grass at shortstop and taken that throw, but he wheeled around so fast. He was so sharp and fast that he got that ball right down the middle of that plate. He had a good accurate arm, but he was a pretty smart man that way. He did so many smart things. Joe, one last question, and I certainly appreciate you taking time to spend with us here on the Philadelphia Radio Network and an opportunity to talk baseball with you. The most difficult decision that you had to make as a ball player was it the day you decided that that was going to be it that you were going to retire was it uh, somewhere else during the course of your career at what time do you think was the single most difficult decision that Joe DiMaggio had to make. Well I'm sure you hit it right on the head when you had to um, when you said I had to make a decision whether I should retire or not and I finally made a decision when I did retire and I stuck with it because the year before I had made up my mind that I was going to retire. But because of all the injuries that I had, by, uh, after the season was over, my injuries left after the first three weeks. And I felt good. And I said, my gosh, I'm going to give it another shot. Well, I, it was the biggest mistake I ever made. After the first two weeks, I was in spring training camp. My aches started to come back, and I knew I had made a mistake. But I stuck the year out. Joe, I want to thank you very, very much. We lost a great friend over the last couple oh, of yes. days. And Hank Greenberg, I certainly would be remiss if I didn't... Uh, at least bring that name up because when you talk about right-handed hitters and Tiger Stadium and home run ability and just a contributor to the game of baseball, whether as a general manager under Bill Veck or as a player, just an outstanding human being and certainly a great loss he to baseball. He was a fine person, a very dear friend of mine. You know, there was no uh, hard feelings with uh, ball players. That when Rudy York came into the Detroit Ball Club. Uh, they asked him that would he mind playing the outfield and that Rudy York played first base because they were both great hitters. York didn't have the um, range that they thought Greenberg might have. And Greenberg certainly said, I'll take a shot at it. But you know, the nice thing about Hank, he, um, 
he didn't just go out there to play left field because they told him it'd be a nice spot for him to do. He came to me one day and he says, Joe, he says, as you well know, I'm playing the outfield now. He said, I got a lot to learn out there. And he asked me a lot of questions and I gave him the best answers I could. And he made himself into a very good outfield. He uh, beat us a couple of ball games. Joe, very, very nice to have you in Philadelphia. Always a pleasure with uh, Eddie Liebertor, of course, as you mentioned, longtime scout with the Los Angeles Dodgers, covering the National League for such a long period of time, now working the National and the American League. Of course, Eddie Liebertor right here with you. For uh, all the folks up there in the Allentown area, all those on the Philadelphia Philly Radio Network, thank you very, very much for spending a few minutes with us. Absolutely. Thank you. When you say one of the all-time greats, you can certainly say that in Joe D. 56 consecutive games, a record that probably will never be broken. That's right, 1941, the same year that Ted Williams hit 406. Of course, Joe D. was the most valuable player that year. I'm Don Henderson. We will continue from Veterans Stadium. We're not too far away from Philadelphia Philly Baseball here on the Phil's Radio Network right after this. This has been the Big Man Files with Doug Miles. You've been listening to our Salute to Baseball. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Send us some feedback. You can email me at dougmiles at hotmail.com or go to our website, dougmilesmedia.com.